I want to read to you from the beginning of Judges 16 all the way through to verse 22, which is the bulk of the chapter. And uh, God willing, next week um, we'll conclude this. Jeremy's going to conclude this, um, the episode in the life of Samson. But today we have reached what is really the darkest and bleakest moment in his particular story. So we're going to read that and we'll seek to understand and hear what God is saying to us through this particular passage. Let me read it to you. Samson went to Gaza and there he saw a prostitute and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, and then we'll kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorak, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we'll each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please Tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber and she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. And Delilah said to Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. She made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he woke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me. These three times, and you've not told me where your great strength lies. When she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. 
And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now, we have been taking some weeks to work through a series on the theme of the Nazarites. And we began with exploring what the Nazarite vow was given in Numbers chapter 6, a vow in which a person could devote themselves to God in a very specific uh, way in order to say, my life belongs to you more fully, God. I'm set apart for your use. I'm set apart to be holy to you. And uh, so we've been interested in these Nazarites in Scripture, these, this special breed who, are, um, who break away from the norms and offer themselves to God in a particular and unique way. And mostly, I think that this theme is there to give us positive encouragement and inspiration. Um, Nazarites are these individuals who rebel against the kind of crowd mentality and the norms of, of uh, the crowd and those around them and are exceptional, exceptional in their devotion and their, um, their, the way in which they're set apart for God. And so generally speaking, this theme of the Nazarites is there to give us that kind of encouragement, to call us to exceptionalism in terms of our love for and devotion to and passion for obedience to God. And I think that that's a calling and an invitation that can be laid on every, every Christian soul. And indeed on your soul, if you're not a Christian, that you are called to God. He wants you. He wants you to be his. And he wants to use you. But at the same time, as we've explored this particular story, of the first elongated story of a Nazarite, which is that of Samson, we are confronted with the tragic reality of squandered potential. And the reality that this man, though he had, in a sense, an incredible privilege and gift um, to be used by God in a unique way in his generation, he wastes it. And he wastes it in the most tragic and heartbreaking way. It's one of the saddest stories in, in the Bible. And there's a warning in there. What is the nature of the warning? Why do we need to listen to it? And I think the answer is that the warning is this, that even the strongest can fail. Even the strongest can fail, and that when the strong fail, they fail spectacularly. Many of you know, I'd be surprised if any of you don't know, the story of the Titanic. But it was a ship that had been built in the early 1900s to be the largest ship afloat on the ocean. And it was lauded as a, a vessel that could not sink. It had been so constructed and designed that if any particular compartment became flooded within the hull of the ship, um, the, the flood wouldn't overwhelm the ship, that it could, it could remain afloat even if it was damaged. And so this was um, lauded as a great feat of engineering and of the, the ability of man and where we had gotten to in terms of technology and so on. And you know the story, it's made in voyage in 1912, set out across the Atlantic with more than 2,000 passengers on, 2,224 people on board. And as it's, as it's sailing around the north of the Atlantic Ocean, strikes an iceberg. And before long, that vessel had sunk, it sunk rapidly. And uh, more than 1,500 people passed away in those freezing icy waters in the North Atlantic Ocean. And it was not just the tragedy of death. It was also the sobering remembrance that the powerful things of this world can never stand eternally. That there is, there's a warning in there against pride and the hubris of man, isn't there? When I was a boy, um, particularly, you know, I, grew, I was born in the 80s. And uh, growing up and then into the early 90s, I was raised on... Um, some of the great films, including the Superman films. And um, one of the first Superman movie was made with Christopher Reeve. Christopher Reeve was um, the kind of model of masculinity and manhood. And um, he, he, looked, he looked pretty magnificent in his Superman costume, in his lycra. Um, but tragically, at the age of 43, that man who had played this invincible character in the movies in his private life, suffered a horse accident, horse riding accident, broke his neck 
and was paralyzed from the shoulders down, needed a ventilator in order to breathe, and had to be, um, you know, moved around and helped for the duration of his life. He died in his early 50s, um, probably around 10 years after the accident. And it was, again, the sobering reminder of this symbol of power and the fact that actually our lives are weak and finite and prone to, to collapse and to fall. And there's something in those images that, that really captures for you what's going on with the life of Samson here. He is, as the scriptures tell us, a man in physically endued with power by the anointing of God's Holy Spirit so that he could, um, he could fight the Philistines. And yet, despite the exceptional, unbelievable privileges that he enjoyed, here we find him crashing because of the disorder that existed in his heart. It all stems from a disordered heart. His, his soul was sick at its core. So despite his gifting and the charisma that he enjoyed, there is this great failing inside him of character and of godliness that leads to his downfall. And so this is why this, this story, this passage, is a potent warning to us as Christians. You need to hear the alarm that it sounds. When Paul was writing to Timothy, Paul, the aging apostle, writing to a younger man who he regarded as a kind of son, and he's offering him fatherly advice. He says this to Timothy. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. So he challenges Timothy and says, listen, in order to survive as a Christian in this world, you have to be prepared to wage war. You have to be prepared to make war. And that was certainly Samson's calling in life. And he says, by rejecting this, by being unwilling to enter the fray, by being unwilling to, to launch yourself into the melee, then some have made shipwreck of their faith. They have struck the iceberg and been sunk. And this is what we need to explore with Samson's life. How do you avoid shipwreck? And in order to understand the answer to that question, we need to specifically ask what actually went wrong with Samson. And I want to give you a few answers to this. And I just preface this with saying that it is not a happy tale. And there is, there is gloom in this account. But there is a note of hope at the end that we want to take some moments to think about before we close. Let me give you the answers here. This is what I see in this passage. The first thing that Samson did wrong is that he fed his flesh. Here's what I mean. In Scripture, the word flesh is used to capture something in your nature. It's used to describe the sinful part of you. If you're somebody who's a Christian who's been redeemed, brought into the family of God, God has imparted within you a spiritual nature, a new nature, a new impulse to love him, to serve him, to offer your life to him. And it's a mark of genuine Christian faith, that God has begun something new in you. He's given you new life. But because you still live in this world and in this body, you're at war with the flesh. The flesh being that part of you that, that fights against the work of the Holy Spirit in you, that, that actually is opposed to the work of God and that wants to draw you back into the things of the world that would destroy you and suffocate you or, or drown your faith. And the scriptures tell us, in, in the book of Romans, Paul tells us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's the war that we're called to engage in primarily. The war that you're called to, 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 to be aggressively, violently engaged in is the war of putting to death the deeds of the flesh. There's no way you can survive as a Christian unless you're in a constant state of warfare, in a sense, against yourself. Now, at the same time, elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul tells us that Listen to these words, he says in Galatians 6. He says, the one who sows to his own flesh, he's using the image of planting seed, but the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. He says, the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. 
And essentially what he's saying is that there is the law. You know, you know this in life, that the law of sowing and reaping, that the things you sow in life, you reap eventually. He's saying that that is never more true as when you're thinking about your own life and the way in which you're called to godliness. If you sow to the flesh, if you feed it, eventually the flesh will overwhelm you, it will kill you. John Owen, one of the Puritans, famously put it like this. He said that be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Unless you are actively at war against the sin in your own life and in your own desires and in your own actions and mind and thoughts and imaginations, unless you're seeking to go to war against this, then eventually sin will overwhelm you and kill you. And that is basically what has happened in Samson's life. When we encounter him in chapter 16 here, he's probably in his 40s at this point. 20 years have passed from the earlier accounts that we read about Samson. There's been a a couple of decades intervening in which we don't know anything about what happened in his life. But one thing that we can see is that they have not been decades of enhanced godliness and spirituality, but that the opposite has been true, that he's been declining. And the same traits that you saw in infant form in his life as a young man have now grown to overwhelm him. And I think particularly of a couple of things in his life. One is, do you remember in chapter 14, when we first encounter him as a, as a man, as an adult, the weakness that's, that, that instantly is revealed to us is his weakness for, for girls. And uh, his interest in, his, his being drawn to and attracted to the wrong type of person. So he falls in love with a Philistine woman then in chapter 14. And the whole story begins to unravel in chaos. And now we meet him more than 20 years later as a, as a man, and he's not gained mastery of himself in this area at all. On the contrary, it now masters him entirely. And so at the beginning of this chapter, we're told this little cameo of how he went to Gaza and he slept with a prostitute. And I think you're meant to understand in here, this is a pattern of his life. There has not been... Um, a desire to, to wage war against sin, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. On the contrary, this sin has grown and grown in his life and gained mastery over him. And this is the nature of the way it, it works, friends. The, the things that you feed, the things that you give way to, eventually overcome you. And that's true in this area of desire, of lust, and of sexual desire especially in his life. And it's also true in another area. When we first met him, if you recall... Perhaps the, the overwhelming impression you get of Samson is a kind of cockiness and arrogance because he feels like he's bulletproof. And he picks fights wherever he goes. And some of that is part of the way God's constructed him. But it's not rooted in humility and dependence upon God. It's rooted in a sense of independence and self-sufficiency. So that's how we've met him in the earlier chapters. And now, here he is, he goes to to a, a, a Philistine town, stays the night with a prostitute, whilst the Philistines are plotting, because he's in the midst of his enemies, they're plotting to kill him, and you know, he rises from sleep, he, he, he gets up in the night, he rips off the gates of the city, a, another feat of supernatural strength, carries them miles away and leaves them on top of a hill. But all of this to show you that he's, he hasn't grown more humble with age. He's become increasingly reckless and chaotic, because the the form of, of pride and cockiness and arrogance that was there in him as a young man hasn't been dealt with. He's not been humbled as yet. I think it's fair to say that any person who is going to be used by God without messing things up is someone who must walk with a limp. God has to break you. He has to humble you. You see that in many stories in Scripture, and that hasn't happened to Samson, unfortunately, so the cockiness of his younger years has now given birth to this full-blown recklessness and foolishness. And so those two great sins that kind of explain all the mess of Samson's life have come to full fruition in him. And I understand it like this, that the, the flaws that were there as a young man have become exaggerated over time, that the cracks have become crevices in his soul. And worst of all, He's been getting away with it. You see it here at the early passage of what happens when he sleeps with the prostitute, rips off the gate of the city. Again, the Philistine attempt to 
capture him and hurt him is not successful. And Samson once more gets away with the chaos and the recklessness of his life. And, you know, he's, he's like an addict walking on the edge. He's kind of feeding off the adrenaline of these situations. He's like an addict pushing himself to the edge of the higher high. And eventually, of course, what, what happens with addicts, they take an overdose. You go too far. And this, Samson has yet to meet his, his destruction, but that is where it's leading. And here's the warning, friends, about feeding the flesh. The sins that you indulge in life, without going to war against them, the sins you indulge in life eventually will overcome you. Because they grow. You hear from time to time about these crazy people who keep pet tigers and lions. They're not designed to be tame pets. And so whilst they're cute and cuddly when they're, when they're tiny, over time you feed them, their appetites grow, their strength grows, they become muscle-bound creatures with sharp claws and large fangs. You know the story in, in Harry Potter of Hagrid with his pet dragon and how cute he thinks the thing is. And then eventually it grows. And this is the, the image of sin in Scripture. You think you can feed this thing, you can indulge it, that you can just tolerate it or cherish it in your life but eventually what happens is it grows to become an overwhelming power that is set on destroying you and the time to deal with that is is at the start if possible or whenever you become aware through confession through repentance through aggression through violence of spirit putting to death the deeds of the body and there's a warning in there, the image of what happens if you don't hear in the story of Samson. And not only do you see this, but the warning is also this, that you must beware when you're getting away with it. When the things you are, you're giving way to are not hurting you as yet. And you think, well, what harm is there? And no one's really challenged you. No, it's not led to a breach in relationships or even the depression and misery that eventually sin will cause in your life, when you're getting away with it and you think, there isn't a cost here, this is fine. My brother, my sister, you have to understand, it never ends like that. Never. And Samson's story is a warning. You can't get away with it in the end. Christ talks to us about the things that take place in quiet and hidden places that we shouted from the rooftops. He's saying eventually the sins in our lives that we think are cherished, that we think are hidden, eventually, eventually you cannot get away with it. Samson fed his flesh. Here's a second thing that you see in his story. And I suppose it's the most famous aspect of his story, the thing that most of us grew up learning about in Sunday school. And it's the fact that he fell in love with darkness. He fell in love with darkness. You see how his eventual undoing is because of a compromised sexual relationship. I think he thought it was a romantic relationship. But it wasn't, was it? You can see that clearly in the story that there's no real romance here. It's just sheer infatuation with a woman who doesn't love him back. And what do we know about this woman, Delilah? Well, we know that she was very likely, almost certainly, a Philistine. We're not actually told that she was, but Samson seems to have a weakness for Philistine women. And she comes from a Philistine area. She's willing to betray him to the Philistines. And she doesn't know anything about his Nazarite vow, his Israelite legal bind that was obviously a foreign custom to her. She's clearly not an Israelite. She's a Philistine. But then also there's something interesting about this woman. Her name, Delilah, sounds a lot like the Hebrew for the word night. And so, and Samson's name, I don't think I've mentioned this to you, but his name means sun, sunshine. And I think that the, the story is meant to tell us something striking about the encounter of the light and the dark. It's interesting to me that in First or Second Corinthians, when Paul's talking about relationships, particularly the relationship of a Christian to a non-Christian, 
He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? This is, of course, the very thing that, that is true in Samson's life. What fellowship does light, Samson, sunshine, have with darkness, Delilah? Now, what does this relationship do to him? I was struck as I was thinking about this story, how it, 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 the greatest commentary, I think, on what happens in Samson's life is Proverbs 31. It's a famous passage, the end of the book of Proverbs, in which Kim, King Lemuel is offering advice to his son, his heir, the prince, who he wants to instruct on the importance of marrying well so that he can rule well. And he offers him famous advice about an excellent wife. And he says, an excellent wife, who can find? She's far more precious than jewels. And he goes on describing this extraordinary and almost unbelievable woman. And he says things like this. He says, about, he says that her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. So the woman is so extraordinary in her partnership with her husband, that, that an excellent wife enables and strengthens and empowers her husband to engage in his calling and work because of the deep sense of partnership that exists between them. And he says of her strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. This is a woman, in other words, who has profound sense of faith in God, that she's not afraid of the future and she's not anxious because she trusts in God. She's a woman of God, and so her life is characterized by strength and dignity. Powerful woman who offers, you know, as God intended a wife to be in the Genesis story, a wife for her husband, a helpmate who brings power and strength and, and kind of victory and battle for the sake of her husband. That's what I think a wife's calling is meant to be. And he, he brings it to a conclusion there. He says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So King Lemuel is saying, he's, he's offering a, a, an incredible picture of, of a marriage that strengthens and empowers both parties. The woman is powerful and she empowers her husband because of her strength and faith and trust in God. But all of that is prefaced with a warning. Listen to the warning and how it resonates with Samson's story. He says to his son there, do not give your strength. Well, let me read a bit further up. He says, what are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. I think King Lemuel obviously saw a weakness in his son, a dalliance and a flirtation with the wrong type of person. And his warning is this, that the entanglement won't strengthen you, but will rather you'll give your strength away. It's true of all kinds of sexual sin especially, that your strength and power in God is drained when you give your strength away in this particular way. Now how does this, you know, obviously this is true in Samson's case, very literally, gives his strength to a woman. And I want to ask you, well, how does this speak to us? And I think, obviously, Delilah represents more than just a sexual or romantic relationship. I think, I think her story depicts for us any kind of entanglement with the world that ultimately sinks you and destroys you and chokes you and suffocates and strangles your faith. There are all kinds of addictions and entanglements in life that can do that to you spiritually. Anything which is drawing you away from God that has its grip on you, that you can't let go of. In a sense, Delilah stands for those things. She's an image of those things in our, in our lives. And the need to reject and be forceful and violent in rejecting them. But I also think we have to look at this at face value and understand the unique danger of what Paul calls this unequal yoking, this relationship of a man of God with a woman who doesn't love and worship the same God. And I want to offer you a few of the symptoms of sickness that exist in this relationship as a kind of a warning to us all. Here they are. One of them is this, that 
The relationship is characterized by opposition instead of a shared mission. Now, when God made marriage, he designed marriage to be a missional partnership. We think that marriage is just about the feeling of being in love and the friendship, and it is that, but it is more than that because the original marriage was given with a specific mission, missional partnership. And I don't think you can understand Christian marriage unless you understand that sense of coming alongside someone, being yoked to someone in a missionary endeavor, serving God together. And every, every marriage should be asking the question, what are we here to do together for the Lord? And empowering each other to that end. And Samson, of course, as somebody with an exceptional calling and mission, that even from before his birth, he was predicted to be a savior of his people against the enemy, the Philistines. As someone with an exceptional calling, should obviously have found a wife who would be on mission with him, in that calling. And yet what he does instead is he, he falls in love with the wrong person. It's really a superficial and shallow love, isn't it? A kind of infatuation with her. He falls in love with her. And the interest she has is not in empowering him, but rather in subduing him. Verse 6, Delilah said to Samson, please tell me, where your great strength lies, and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Now, I don't think that that is ever, is very often an explicit aim in marriage, but sometimes it's the implicit aim, that where there's an opposition, where you don't, you're not on the same mission together, then of course you're, you are in a deep sense at war with each other. And what's the purpose of war? The purpose of war is to subdue the other. And Delilah is interested in subduing him. It's, it's a relationship characterized by opposition instead of shared mission. Here's another symptom. It's a relationship characterized by self-interest instead of self-sacrifice. Now, we spent some time exploring what marriage is in, in Ephesians 5 um, a couple of months ago. But marriage is is designed by God to be the relationship in which you most are called to the action and the posture of self-sacrifice for the other person. The husband is meant to be like Christ who died for his bride and therefore dying daily for the need of, and to love his wife. The wife is there to honor her husband, to sacrifice her self-interest in serving him. And so there is this mutual self-sacrifice that makes a healthy marriage. But it's the opposite of what you see here in Samson and Delilah's relationship. Samson is in this for purely selfish ends and sexual gratification. He fell in love with a woman in the Valley of Sorek. He was infatuated with her. And Delilah is more interested in the bribe, the 1,100 pieces of silver that are offered to her. In other words, guaranteed health and wealth for the rest of her life, and so she sells him out. Now, you know, oddly enough, you know, I've read a fair amount about the, the, the trends in terms of the changes that have taken place within romantic relationships in the Western world in recent decades, and one of the ways that sociologists describe romantic relationships today, in contrast to historic relationships, there was the traditional marriage which is seen as an institution for the benefit of society. Then there was the romantic model of marriage. But these days it's given way to what some sociologists call confluent love, which can be defined like this. It's defined by one writer like this. The contract to unite for emotional and individualistic purposes. So each person enters into the relationship with their own interests as the primary thing, and they're, they're okay with being in the relationship for as long as their interests are met. The feelings that they want to feel, the life they want to live, the calling that they want to pursue. And they're happy for as long as the relationship serves their own individual ends and, and desires. And of course, what happens when you no longer feel like your needs are being met? Well, we heard it in a thousand stories, you know, different ways that people explain, explain their divorces and breakups, you know the way in which people so easily 
point to themselves as the reason why they can't be with the other person anymore. My needs weren't met. I didn't feel it anymore. It's two selfish individuals temporarily partnering with each other for mutual gain. But as soon as the gain isn't there, well, they can part ways. And that's not a modern thing. That's not a new thing. It was there in this story. Two selfish individuals. It's the opposite of what God intended marriage to be. The self-giving, the self-sacrifice. Some, most of you are not married. Listen carefully to the things I'm saying. It will spare you unbelievable heartache if you don't get off on the right footing. Another symptom is it's marked by sexual gratification instead of covenant love. You know, marriage is meant to be the giving of yourself to, other in, in, to another in one flesh union, the bind, the unbreakable covenant, which is why the vows take place before you sleep together so that your lives are, 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 are bounded in an inseparable bond so that your heart won't be broken by the easy way in which relationships are pulled apart these days. But of course, that's not true here. Here, they're not even married. They're cohabiting without any vows. And she's using sex to manipulate him. You hear how the, the Philistines talk to her. They say, seduce him, seduce him and see where his great strength lies. And she's more than happy to do that. She knows the power she has over him. It's the power of her beauty and of her body. So night after night, he's staying in her house. And we don't have to guess at what's taking place and why he's so easily lulled into a false sense of security with her. She's manipulating him, and he is more than happy to be used because he's getting what he desires. And it's the opposite of covenant love, isn't it? It's just sexual gratification. And here's another mark of a sickness in this relationship. It's marked by spiritual decline and barrenness instead of iron sharpening iron. Mutual strengthening and empowering in God. The phrase iron sharpening iron is used to friendship in Scripture. Ideal vision of friendship. That, that just as you sharpen an iron blade upon another piece of iron, it's saying through the friction of good and godly friendship, you both get sharper. You both become more effective. You both become more dangerous for Christ. And that is never more true than in the context of a healthy marriage where there is loving confrontation, where each of you are pointing each other to Christ, where each of you are feeding each other's souls by, by nurturing each other in the Word of God and in prayer and in all these kinds of things, that, of course, the opposite of that is taking place in Samson's life. This woman is draining him of power, draining him of strength in a literal sense, which is symbolic, of course, because he's, he's falling further and further away from the God he's supposed to love. The vision of shared mission, of self-sacrifice, of covenant love, and of iron sharpening iron is what marriage is supposed to be. And here's Samson in a relationship with a woman who opposes his deepest life purpose, where each of them are in the, into their own interests, self-interest, where their sexual gratification is really the only reason they're together, fundamentally, and where his life is then characterized by this spiritual barrenness. And I want to ask you, friend, is there anything or anyone in your life that represents this form of entanglement that is taking you away from rather than towards Christ? He fell in love with darkness. This brings us to the last thing. Not only did he feed his flesh and fall in love with darkness, ultimately, Samson's story comes to its conclusion here in that he betrays his true calling and identity as a man of God. You look at how the story progresses, and here's what happens. Three times, Delilah persuade Samson to give her his secret of his strength. And he offers her these answers. He's teasing her. Tie me with bowstrings. Tie me with new ropes. 
bind my hair into, the, into uh, some kind of contraption, I suppose. And, uh, and each of the times tells her, that if you do these things, then, then my strength will leave me. And of course, he's teasing her, but he's also getting closer to the truth, isn't he, as he mentions his hair there. And it gets to this point of this kind of climax in which she's clearly infuriated and frustrated and turns all of her emotional manipulation and weapons upon him in verse 15. She says, how can you say, I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and you've not told me where your great strength lies. You see how he's under her control there. She can, she can, she can manipulate him so, so obviously, I will say. And it says, when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. He was terribly vexed. He was confused. He was, he was troubled. He, was, he wanted to, to, to get away with all the emotional friction in the relationship and just do what she needed to happen in order to just dispense, dispense with all the, the trouble, just have an easy life. And so what does it do? He confesses the truth about himself from his heart. Listen to these words. I think this verse is so critical. Verse 17, it tells us, and he told her all his heart. He bared his soul, in other words. And he said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. If you're new to this story, you have to understand that part of Samson's calling as a Nazarite was that he, from birth, he never had his hair cut. And it was a contract with God, essentially. That the symbol of his devotion to God would be partly his hair, and that therefore God would empower him for as long as he was God's man, by giving him supernatural strength. And the minute that he opens his heart to her in this way, Delilah knows the difference. She knows the difference with all the previous teasing that he's been doing. She knows that he's telling the truth because it tells us in verse 18 that Delilah saw that he told her all his heart. And she sent and called the lords of the Philistines and told them, come up again. He's told me all his heart. So they spring in a, the, the trap for the fourth time. Now, what I want you to understand here is what's really going on at a kind of deep and spiritual level in Samson's heart. The critical turning point, the pivotal moment in his life is there in verse 17 when it says that he told her all his heart and told her the truth about his identity, who he was as a Nazarite. And I think this is, this is a pivotal moment because it could have gone either way. You see, there's a kind of wistfulness in him, a kind of reminiscence, a kind of glint in his eye, isn't there? as he bears his soul and remembers who he is before her. And I think that that could have gone either way because as you remember your true identity, if you're someone who's been away from God for any time, part of what can bring you back to God is the remembrance of who, who you really are, the passion you used to have, the relationship that you used to enjoy, and what's gone wrong. And I've seen that look on people's eyes. I've seen that look on people's eyes, and I've seen it go one of either, either way. I've seen people who feel a sadness and a grief at what they used to have, and it motivates them to recover their true identity. But I've also had those conversations with people who are very honest and bear their soul and, and remember what they used to have, but they've given up. And so I see this moment as the ultimate and pivotal moment in Samson's life because it could have gone either way for him. As he remembers who he really is, is he going to recover his calling before God through repentance? Because it is not too late at this point. Despite him having made an absolute catastrophic mess of his life, he could have turned around. You can always turn around. But instead, in remembering who he is, he's given up because he's offering it to her. He's offering, it's as though he's, he's ripped open his own ribcage, pulled out his beating heart, put it on a platter, and offered it to her. This is the moment. Because he knows what she's going to do. How could he not? This happened three times already. He knows. 
exactly what's going to happen. And so he offers her his true self. This is the moment at which he turns his back on God. It's a moment of what you would call apostasy. Denying his own faith. Denying his identity. Denying his sonship before God. And I think it's the saddest moment. One of the saddest moments in Scripture. So what happens? It's the same routine, except with more cruelty thrown in. She shaves his head, and it says she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And then listen to verse 20. It says, she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he woke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. There can come a point in the life of a person who abandons God, that God, God's spirit may, in a sense, depart his favor, his blessing on your life. It's what David prayed about when he committed adultery in the psalm that, that Jeremy read at the beginning of the service, Psalm 51. He says, do not, he prays, do not take your spirit from me. And Samson doesn't know that that is exactly what's happened. God has, as it were, turned his back on Samson in a moment of abandonment. And then what happens? He's bound, he's blinded, and he's set to bat-breaking work for the, at the mill. Friend, all of this is the most visceral and stark warning. Samson's held up for us. This picture is painted in so much detail for us so that you can see the tragedy of a life of squandered potential, of what happens when, when sin overwhelms a person, when you turn your back on who you really are in Christ. It may be the case that some of you, that is your story right now. Or the beginnings of your story. And it will go that way if you don't turn around. What hope is there? I want you to notice what happens right at the end here. This is Samson's moment of humbling. It had to come. It came a bit late for him, I think, but it had to come. And God humbles us eventually. But it tells us in the last verse we read, verse 22, as he's slaving in a dungeon, head shorn, shackled, grinding at the mill, it tells us, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Friend, this is not here as an, an uninteresting detail in the story. This is here to tell you that grace is available in new beginnings. And even when you have reached what you think is the absolute catastrophic end of your story, God's grace is so potent, His mercy is so new every morning, that a fresh start can happen. You think your marriage is at the end. God can turn it around. You think your personal godliness is, is a disaster. You've given way to sin in all kinds of ways. And God says you can, you can begin again, child. You think you've wandered away from the calling that you knew God put on your life. He says it's not too late. Come back. No matter how far you fall, redemption is possible. That is the gospel. And why? Why? How? How is it possible that you and I can make such a disastrous mess of our lives and still be loved by a father who draws us back and renews us and clothes us and, and recommissions us? How is that possible? And I think this story is also meant to speak to us of the greater Samson of Jesus. He also was in love with his bride, with humanity, with the, human, with the church that he wanted to save. And what did we do? What did humanity do to Christ? We stripped him and tormented him and abused him. 
when he went to the cross. And just as the, Samson didn't know here that God had, uh, had left him, Christ also was abandoned upon the cross. Samson's story is ultimately meant to point to the saving work of Jesus. But this difference, of course, that Christ was not a victim when he was tormented by humanity and crucified. He was a willing substitute so that you would not have to endure the same pain and suffering that he went through. Listen to how C.S. Lewis describes this in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When Edmund has committed this heinous wrong and a death must atone, and Aslan, the great lion, offers his own life in, in place of Edmund, and so the white witch in her glee, seizes the lion. It says they began to drag him towards the stone table, which represents the cross where Christ is crucified. Stop, says the witch. Let him first be shaved. Another roar of mean laughter went up from her followers as an ogre with a pair of shears came forward and squatted down by Aslan's head. Snip, snip, snip went the shears. And masses of curling gold began to fall to the ground. And the ogre stood back, and the children watching from their hiding place could see the face of Aslan, looking all small and different without its mane. The enemies also saw the difference. Why? He's only a great cat, after all, cried one. Is that what we were afraid of? said another. And they urged, they surged round Aslan, jeering at him. Oh, how can they, said Lucy, tears streaming down her cheeks. The brutes, the brutes. For now that the first shock was over, the shorn face of Aslan looked to her braver and more beautiful and more patient than ever. Christ, in his moment of deepest, deepest agony and humiliation, stripped naked flogged, nailed, and speared on the cross was, in a sense, symbolized there in the story of Aslan being shorn and humiliated. But Christ endured that humiliation to spare you, to be your substitute, And to make a way possible that no matter how much you have messed up your life, his blood can atone, he can cleanse you, and he can restore you. 